The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. One suspects that October 31st, 1517, dawned much like any other in the region of Saxony. And when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther hammered up the 95 Theses for public debate, he could not have imagined that his action would be the catalyst for a schism within Christendom, one whose repercussions would be felt for centuries. And yet here we are, 500 years later, still dealing with the deeply ambiguous legacy of the Reformation. On the one hand, had there been no Reformation, there would be no Baptists. And I rather like being Baptist. Indeed, I believe being Baptist is a vocational call I have to a wider Christendom and to the world. So the fact that I have this call and that Baptists exist is a fact for which I have gratitude. On the other hand, had there been no Reformation, there would have been no schism, no fracture down the heart of the church. Very likely there would have been no 30 years war, no long history of mutual hatred and misunderstanding across emerging denominational divides. As I said, the legacy is ambiguous, and my response to it is thus rather ambivalent. Is there a way that Protestants and Catholics can recognize and celebrate our differences, whilst moving some distance toward healing that schism and recognizing our common faith and identity as the body of Christ? With that lofty goal in mind, in this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast, we mark the Reformation by way of a conversation with Dr. Julian Hammond. Dr. Hammond is the ecumenical and interreligious officer for the Catholic Archdiocese of Edmonton and a sessional instructor at St. Joseph's College, the University of Alberta, with a specialty in religious education. His passions include lay education in the church and ecumenical dialogue across denominational lines in emulation of Christ's prayer that all may be one, John 17, 21. And that prayer serves as the theme for this commemoration of Reformation Day. Julian, it's great to have you joining us on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, a day that we commemorate rather than celebrate. Would you like to, to talk maybe as an opener about the difference between commemoration of an event like this and the celebration of that event? Let me just say uh, it's a joy to be here, so thank you for the invitation. Yeah, the language around um, marking the 500th anniversary of the Reformation has been uh, uh, a little bit sensitive and a little bit tricky for not just our Catholic community, but for Catholics and Lutherans and other Christian communities that are marking this uh, this anniversary. The language of celebration, I mean there is a celebratory dimension if you want to speak about our, our uh, rediscovering one another as sisters and brothers in Christ and of course our celebration of our faith or one faith in Christ. Um, but this 500th anniversary has given us also pause to reflect on um, how we have we haven't lived that one faith particularly well together in the last 500 years. So there's been a kind of tone of also remembering and repentance that has that has been part of the commemorative events. And that's why we have opted, um, generally speaking, in the ecumenical world to use the language of 
commemoration rather than celebration to mark this 500th anniversary. Now, you spend your days working in this area of ecumenism. Can you define what that is? Right. So maybe I begin with uh, with even my title. I am ecumenical officer of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese here uh, in the Edmonton area. An ecumenical officer is someone who is uh, appointed by their church to uh, promote Christian unity. And so ecumenism specifically is the effort, the search to restore Christian unity. It's an inter-Christian movement. Mm. Um, I make that distinction or I put that emphasis on it to distinguish it from interfaith or interreligious work, which is the conversation of Christians all together in conversation with other world religions, Islam or Buddhism or what have you. Uh, it happens in my role as ecumenical officer that I have the dual responsibility of interfacing with other Christian communities, trying to restore unity within the body of Christ, and this interreligious role. But we uh, we keep the two uh, facets of that responsibility quite distinct. Now that's that's interesting because often one of the I come from a what I sometimes call as a fundagelical background. Okay. It's not a term I coined, but a kind of Christian community that has some hallmarks of what would be classically called evangelical, but also sort of fundamentalist, conservative, Protestant. Mm. And from that background, I would say ecumenical is, is often viewed negatively. It is viewed with some suspicion, ecumenism, the movement, that it is associated with quote-unquote liberalism mm -hmm. with an idea of a lowest common denominator approach yeah. to to doctrine mm -hmm. where we kind of paper over the the really important differences just so we can sing kumbaya i'm yes. saying this in a very well a little bit of a prov provocative way but oh, it is you. true and uh, and also even pluralism so maybe if if we could start if you could say something about those kinds of concerns maybe start with pluralism because I think you've already to some extent addressed that mm -hmm. with the distinction between uh, an interfaith dialogue and an interchristian dialogue. Yeah. Um part of what's where where some confusion can arise in the in you know mixing up these two facets or or keeping them separate where where sometimes there can be some confusion is that, at least in the Catholic uh, community, our methodology, uh, how we approach these ministries, um, uh, can come to resemble, it, we follow a similar methodology, let me put it that way, we follow a similar methodology, but with a very different goal in mind, right? Uh, so that methodology, if I can just spell that out, uh, follows four trajectories. One is around faith formation, so educating ourselves about ecumenism, about interfaith relations, uh, as a Catholic community, the principles of our engagement in these these things, but also telling others about ourselves, right? This is part of sharing the, the journey of who we are, Catholics to other Christians and Catholics to a wider interfaith community. So the first dimension is one of faith formation or, or education. The second is around dialogue, and here's where we, where we interact uh, with our scholarship, our theologians, in conversation on theological matters, dialogue. The third is around spiritual activities, 
praying together, worship. Obviously, in a Christian, inter-Christian context, that takes a very different form than it does in an interfaith or interreligious context. Um, and yet, efforts are made at dis, you know uh, touching the spiritual in both directions. And finally, around common witness, our social action in the world and um, uh, expressions of God's mercy in the world. And again, it takes very different forms among Christians and in interreligious uh, contexts. So, in both directions, we follow this fourfold hmm. ministry. But obviously, the uh, the connection with Christians, or the, let's say the goal of our working uh, in the ecumenical framework, is much, much more uh, richer and uh, the stakes are much higher. We're we're aiming here at a unity of faith, at a unity of, of our communal life together in Christ. In the interreligious context, um, I think the goal is set much lower around friendship and peacemaking and being neighborly and that sort of thing. Mm. So the methodology that we follow is similar, at least in the Catholic community, um, but the aims are different. And I think it's very important to keep those things distinct. Not sure mm -hmm. if I answered your question. No, that's very good. Can I just we ask can you? Explore this some more. Um, as as a, s a footnote to this, mm. there there are some groups where it's there's a, some controversy as to which one of these you put them into, whether into Christian or into uh, non-Christian religious. So one fairly large community in in Edmonton is the Mormon community. Yeah. Do you have a view on uh, where you would place the Mormon community into this framework? Yeah, the Mormon community is one of these um, um, difficult um, religious expressions to categorize by these two terms, ecumenism and interfaith. Of course, they are the Church of Jesus Christ. In that respect, uh, we try to engage the Mormon community uh, in a conversation, a dialogue uh, around our, our common faith in Jesus Christ. But they are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They hold a, um, a post-New Testament revelation that would be considered, not just by us, but I think by many Christians, to be um, um, a third revelation uh, uh, outside of the, the normative biblical revelation that, that Orthodox Christianity would recognize. And in that sense, in many respects, um, they fall into the interreligious camp by virtue of that third revelation. So it's a tricky community for us to engage by this sort of mm -hmm. binary way of, <laughs> of viewing yeah. things. But uh, um, and we find opportunities to engage the Mormon community specifically bidirectionally, if I can say so. Mm -hmm. So to come back to the lowest common denominator, one, one, one place where that objection came was, was in the Lutheran World Federation joint statement with the Catholic Church on the doctrine of justification that came out in 1999. I was interested, and uh, maybe you could just mention this, because I just heard you speak in our chapel that you mentioned several other groups that have since signed on to that. If you could just mention those groups as well, because I think that's of interest. Uh, and then the, the charge that um, the, the key issue that separated Protestants and Catholics, one key issue, w was the doctrine of justification. Um, so if you could just uh, 
address the, the approach of that document to have a joint statement on grace and the, the substance and value of that in, in your opinion and that that's not obviously a lowest common denominator approach that would compromise parties who are joint to this discussion. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, the joint declaration on the Doctrine of Justification in 1999 was a groundbreaking um, um, document because it allowed us together as Catholics and Lutherans to articulate together, not not identically, mm -hmm. but together. I think uh, one of the key uh, theological disagreements um, that that Martin Luther himself took w with respect to the Catholic Church in the 16th century, let's say around the teaching of of uh, justification, the place of works in relation to to faith, and so on. Um, so this groundbreaking agreement isn't so much an articulation, an identical articulation by Catholics and Lutherans around uh, 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 justification as much as a groundbreaking methodology in how we approach uh, controversial, uh, problematic, theological uh, substance uh, matters. So we have, for instance, uh, uh, the ecumenical world recognizes in the JDDJ document, mm -hmm. um, the paradigm of, of uh, reconciled diversity, that you have different approaches and different articulations um, of, of the same reality. And in the end, we can agree to use different language, because in our hearts and in our minds, we know that we're saying the same thing around around the, uh, the priority of faith in the context of saving uh, faith in mm -hmm. Jesus Christ um, as, as our salvation. Uh, other, obviously, other uh, communions have found this a helpful paradigm. You know, differentiated consensus is the language that they mm. use. Differentiated consensus to speak of this, you know, mm. uh, being able to say things differently, saying the same things differently. <laughs> differentiated consensus. So, for instance, the World Methodist Council uh, signed on to this document. I don't know the exact dates of these uh, uh, accords. The World Communion of Reformed Churches has also um, signed on to the Joint Declaration. Today, this very day, October 31st, 2017, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in the name of the Anglican Communion, is also uh, signing on effectively to the substance of the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. Hmm. Which is not to say that we're all articulating theologically, uh, you know, our, our Doctrine of Justification using the same language, but using our own language, we are all articulating, I think, the same uh, reality of the, of the Doctrine of Justification. Uh, yeah. Can, um, I want to sure say something about um, listening in this whole dial dialogue, because so often the the divisions have been perpetuated by assumptions that each party has had about the other, and those are broken down with listening. Yeah. Uh, and there's this quote I love from Henry Nouwen, listening is the highest form of hospitality. Mm. Could you just say something about the role of listening to the other in the process of ecumenical 
dialogue. Yeah. Well, I've had the privilege of being involved with lots of dialogues on a local level, nationally, even internationally now. And whenever we come together for dialogue, whether it be an afternoon, a weekend, a week long, depending on the format, there's always a dimension there of, of, of our coming together under one roof, of meeting each other face to face. We try to use technology to bridge distance and mm. so on. It's not the same dynamic as when we get together in the room face to face with each other and listen to one another, right? Um, sometimes, sometimes tensions in the room uh, are diffused when we have to go to uh, a meal together, <laughs> lunch together, mm-hmm. or we or we adjourn the evening, you know, uh, and come back to it the next morning after we've brought it to prayer and and some time together, um, or some time alone. There's a there's something of the methodology of those dialogues, that listening stance, that is uh, that is super important. The question of our living together under one roof, where we, where by and large we have lost even the art of being able to do that en masse, right, mm-hmm. in terms of our, of, our, of our communities. So it's very important. One of the things I want to say in this context, though, of listening is that the ecumenical movement today is largely marked, uh, let's say, in the last 10 years or so, by a movement called receptive ecumenism. Receptive ecumenism, this isn't groundbreaking stuff as much as to say, receptive ecumenism puts the accent on listening, on receiving gifts from one another. It's a gift exchange. Mm-hmm. So it's not a question now here of trying, you know, I as a Catholic trying to convince you to, to change who you are by virtue of the strength of my position. As much as to, um, to gather in humility and say, there is something wonderful about the way that the Lord is living and working in you that I find attractive and that I would love to to be enriched by or to learn by. This kind of listening stance, if you want to call it that, uh, has basically marked the ecumenical movement, uh, maybe certainly for 10 years, maybe longer. Uh, uh, the idea that there are gifts of the one spirit available throughout the church that are maybe better lived in one community than another, better accented here than there, better preserved here than there, given the, the divisions but that are meant to enrich us all. Mm. It's not that they're absent in my community. They might just be muted. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And to call them forth by the witness, the example, the articulation that we find in others. Um, This has been, I guess, a rich uh, uh, discovery for me as an ecumenist, being involved in these uh, dialogues. And I think it is really, really the way forward for our churches uh, in terms of engaging, you know, uh, an enriched ecumenical stance. Now, to, to take that in, I could certainly, I'll put it this way, I could take that in the direction of the Pauline metaphor of the body uh, in First Corinthians 12 especially. So we have this image of the body of Christ and the individual members are all the different parts of the body that make up the body. What I seems I hear you saying is we can likewise think of different ecclesial communions as like different expressions of the body. Now, I certainly resonate with that. I mean, I think as a Baptist, as a progressive evangelical, that 
my communion, my, my community and the expression of Christianity from which it is born and which, to which it seeks to be, bear faithful witness does bring certain qualities that you maybe don't have in all other denominational expressions. There are also weaknesses. But this raises a, a question then of, maybe put it this way, divine providence in the midst of all this. The sort of traditional understanding I would have of a Catholic perspective is that all things being equal, you'd sure prefer it if we were all in communion with Rome and all recognizing the Pope as the vicar of Christ and head of the church. Mm. Do I hear you surrendering that? <laughs> or is that still in the background? Um, can I be a, be a Baptist um, and that be part of God's providential expression that I'm a low church congregational Baptist? How do we... Uh, do, do we still at some point move beyond the sort of pluralist landscape that all ecclesial expressions are valid and important expressions of the church to, but let's move towards some greater visible unity and doctrinal consensus at the end of the day? This is such a complex question, and there's lots of angles that I want to, I, I hope I remember them all as I'm going through this, but um, whether we're using the Pauline imagery of the body of Christ or the Johannine imagery of uh, which has been the text to uh, animate the commemorative um, uh, Reformation 500 celebration <laughs> commemorative mm -hmm. events yeah, with yeah. the Lutheran <laughs> communities. We have been using uh, um, the gospel text of Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Mm. Um, you had earlier spoken about you know ecumenism as a search for a lowest common denominator. I think it's precisely the opposite. It's it's mm. it's a reaching for the highest common denominator, which mm. is our which is our headship, you know, the vine, <laughs> Christ. Yeah. Mm. And a discovery, I think, in humility, in full humility, that what, you're, what you've admitted of, of your own faith tradition is, can also be said of the Catholic tradition. Listen, there are certainly weaknesses, certainly weaknesses, that, that need to be addressed, that needed to be addressed in the 16th century, that have been in, in large measure addressed in these last 500 years, and, um, and others that continue to need to be addressed. I don't know if this is surrendering. Um, I think it's surrendering Catholic triumphalism. I think I'm absolutely comfortable to do that. Uh, at the Second Vatican Council, our, our church came to articulate our relationship as the Catholic communion to the body of Christ using very delicate, sensitive language that remains tricky even some 50 years later. In fact, this is the most controversial piece probably of the, of the Second Vatican Council for us. We came to articulate that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church in the visible expression of the Catholic Church. Some people want to read subsists as exists. The Church of Christ exists as the visible representation of the Catholic Church. The Council Fathers did not say exist. <laughs> they said it's our relationship is that we, we subsist within the body of Christ, or the body of Christ subsists within our visible expression. This leaves open, I think, room for and we articulated this too, that there are, that there is the life of the Spirit outside of our visible, mm. <laughs> you know, reality of the Catholic Church. That other 
communions are also um, alive in the Word of God, in the Spirit of God, in the gifts of the Spirit animating, um, in believing Jesus as way, truth, and life. Uh, we don't hold the monopoly on that as mm -hmm. Catholics. I'd like to, to maybe says as we wind this down to, to sh maybe share something that I think I really find attractional and impressive about the Catholic Church as I've experienced it, and then invite you to reciprocate in kind something from some other Christian tradition that, that you've really appreciated in that expression of Christianity. Sure. So for me, I'll begin in a, perhaps a an unusual idiosyncratic place, and that's with the 1992 Spike Lee film, <laughs> Malcolm X. Wow. So in Malcolm X, of course, it's the true story of, of Malcolm Little, who, who became this, well, he converted to the Nation of Islam in the early 1960s. Uh, and then at some point, he went to Mecca, and he was transformed by going to Mecca, and he realized the schismatic expression of Islam almost cultic expression that he had learned through Nation of Islam was not really a valid expression of Islam and it was only when he saw is all the people of Earth, all these people from across the earth coming to this one place of Mecca that he had a sense of the grandeur and the history of this religious community. There is something to be said from my perspective as a low church, grew up uh, Pentecostal, became Baptist, uh, someone like me. So we, we talked about the Apostles' Creed this morning. It came up in chapel. I never heard the Apostles' Creed until I went to university, mm. to a Christian university. Mm. Non-creedal tradition didn't even have any rootedness really in Azusa Street, the origins of Pentecostalism. For me, the church really just was kind of not much beyond the borders of that church that I, I grew up in, in Kelowna, B.C. Uh, that community. I didn't have a sense of connectedness and rootedness and something deeper. And I suspect that is, is a problem with many low church evangelical communities. They don't have a sense of connectedness. And one place in particular where you see that is the incorporation of, of new people into a church community. Often it, it's in the churches that I've known, it's, it's, it's something like, well, have you been you know, if you're Baptist, have you been immersion baptized? Yes. Okay, check. Uh, now you now we have a weekend seminar. You have to come to the seminar. We'll talk about our church's statement of belief, and if you agree with that, then we'll take you on a tour of the premises, and we're good. And contrast that with my brother converting 10 years ago to Catholicism, and you had this rite of Christian initiation that goes through the year that culminates in in the taking of the Eucharist at Easter, and it is mm -hmm. some huge deal. Mm -hmm. It's not easy, but it's definitely not lowest common denominator, and you have a sense mm -hmm. of, I'm joining something important and transformative here. Yeah. I think we l have often lost that sense of history mm -hmm. and transcendence, and I could go on, but mm -hmm. that's certainly something that I appreciate from the Catholic Church. And uh, Several years ago, I was at a conference, and there was an evangelical who will remain nameless, a pretty well-known theologian who said if he ever stopped being Baptist evangelical, he'd be Catholic for precisely these kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. So so that's mm -hmm. me tipping my hat and saying thank yeah. you yeah. for that witness. Now, look at us in the gift exchange. Yes. Um, well, for me, I mean, an enrichment in my own personal life, of course, has been the reclamation of, of a biblical tradition. Not that it was always, that it was absent, 
but certainly more pronounced in Protestant communities in a general way, mm. scriptura, mm. right? Um, for many Catholics, for many generations, the Bible was something you received maybe on your, you know, at a wedding or on some special occasion, and it became, you know, a place to record the family history. It was, you know, mm. you keep your baptismal documents and so ah. on within that text, but hardly ever opened in the context of, you know, faith-filled reading it. Of, of the word or praying the scriptures at home and in, in the family um, so anyway I mean absolutely absolutely the reclamation of of a scriptural uh, tradition and heritage uh, has been an enrichment for me and my encounters with uh, with Protestant Christianity in a general way I would say to um, you know an, an enriched sense of the priesthood of all believers here we're talking again mm -hmm. Luther language, right? Um, this and Petrine language too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this uh, again, not that it was absent; it was muted. You know, this mm -hmm. sense of of our of the priesthood of uh, within our baptism, participating in the ministry of Christ, and how it comes to play out. You know, really tangibly. I'm talking very personally now. Is in the position even. Uh, the kind of employment, if you want to call it that, ministry that I have within my church. The context of lay ecclesial mm. ministry was not a category largely for my parents, for my grandparents, or those generations before. Now I find myself um, called mm. as a lay ecclesial minister in the, in the leadership, part of the leadership of my, of my church community here locally, uh, in a very specific ministry of trying to animate ecumenism and interreligious relations. But nevertheless, that that's a possibility for me, even as a, as a lay Catholic, is uh, a great, great uh, mm. blessing and a rediscovery in our time. So much so that the, the theology of lay ecclesial ministry in our community is still very much under development. Mm. So, you know, we are, the f we are in many ways the fruit of of a single of the first generation of ecumenists we are now this you know let's call us the second generation um, in some sense bearing the fruit of that first generation's hard heavy lifting work but still with the whole road ahead of us <laughs> which is quite exciting and mm -hmm. dynamic and unscripted about where it will lead us next so it's, it's a. I've taken a it's taken you me a field of of this uh, of answering yeah. this question, but it's a. It's a very exciting time to be involved mm. ecumenically, uh, to be involved in, in leadership of any church variety, mm. because as I was, uh, trying to say this morning, it's not just a question of us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and 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 and, and doing this you know ecumenical, you know, uh, good works. <laughs> This is a question of fidelity to Christ's own prayer that all may be one, so that the world may believe. The connection between unity and mission uh, is something that we are still still grappling with and, and coming to, uh, to digest in all of our communities. Yeah. That all may be one. Great words in which to end. Thank you very much, Julian. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Randall, for the opportunity. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. 
For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrouser.com.